we are in week 7 of our series exploring Matthew chapters 24 and 25. And this idea, or really this hope that we have, that Jesus is coming again. And we've heard a whole bunch on this already, but today we get to the surprise. As in, the people in our text today actually seem surprised in a way that nobody so far has. But I think I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's actually read the text. In Matthew chapter 25, we'll start in verse 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So my wife uh, bought me this t-shirt that says, hold on while I overthink this. And uh, you may want to keep that in mind as we go forward here. Um, Sometimes it's really easy to see the hope in a passage of scripture. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's pretty full of hope. That's an easy place to see that. But this one, Craig handed it to me and I said, are you sure you don't want this one? For starters, it has this sort of transactional legal language about it. You did this, so you go to the good place. And then you didn't do this, so you go to the bad place. It just doesn't really feel like the Jesus that we hear about all the time. I mean, even mentioning that there is a bad place is kind of uncomfortable for us. Let alone phrases like eternal fire or eternal punishment. You know, what about grace? But again, I think I'm getting ahead of myself here. I I promise that this passage, like the rest of Scripture, is a passage of hope. It points us towards the God who loves his creation. But you're going to have to bear with me a little bit. What I just read to you is totally outside of its context. Which is not how you would have heard this the first time it was read. The first time... This was something that you had already heard 24 other chapters of text 
before you got to it. So where are we here? What has happened leading up to this moment? Well, for starters, this is part of a much larger conversation. Jesus talks an awful lot in the book of Matthew. There is a lot of red letters as you go through this one. But the series that we're currently in on Matthew 24 and 25 is all from a fairly lengthy monologue. So if you go back a bit, Jesus comes to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as the king. And people celebrate their liberation that is at hand. At the same time, the Roman governor is coming in on the other side of the city. Full of pomp and military might. He's entering on a war horse. He's cheered on by the wealthy elite. He's surrounded by the finest soldiers and weapons of war that Rome had to offer. And in contrast, Jesus comes in on a donkey, a borrowed donkey at that, with coats and palms laid in the street instead of a red carpet. And it's only the oppressed citizens of Jerusalem, the ordinary people, who are here to welcome him. It's quite a contrast. From there, Jesus goes straight to the temple and basically turns the place over. He tosses out all these merchants taking advantage of people. A den of thieves and robbers is what he calls them. But then Jesus goes to a little town called Bethany. It's a suburb of Jerusalem for the night. Now, in the morning, the day after, Jesus heads back to Jerusalem. It's actually back to the temple itself. But on his way, we get this odd little story. He comes to a fig tree, and it's the morning, and so he's hungry. But this little tree has no fruit, and apparently it's supposed to. And so for some reason, he curses the fig tree, which withers and dies. And then the story moves on. He goes to the temple, and he has a very long exchange with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And this is not a kind exchange. Jesus basically schools the Pharisees as he tells everyone else who's listening in that the Pharisees are empty vessels who don't practice what they preach. It's a very bold accusation for that day. And at the end of this, he says, look at your house, which he's talking about the temple. Your house has left you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then he leaves the temple. It's actually the last time he leaves the temple. And that is when the disciples decide to start calling attention to the buildings. And Jesus begins talking about how the temple will be torn down. And when all is said and done, when Jesus comes back, everything will be different. See, so far in our series, we've heard that many will try to claim to be the savior of all things, to be the answer to the world's woes. But they are deceivers, and we are not to fall for their lies. We've also heard that we are not to be alarmed or worried about the coming of the end, but rather we ought to preserve, persevere, and finish. Because there will be times of trouble, and it will be hard to see that God is at work. But we shouldn't let that distract us. Even though we don't know when Jesus will return. God rather wants us not to be distracted by the trouble around us, or he doesn't want us to be anxiously awaiting that moment he returns, but rather he wants our attention on him now, acting like him now. This, Jesus says, is what it takes us to be ready for his return. 
Because Jesus said he wants everyone to have a chance to be saved. And so now our passage opens at the end. As Jesus comes into his glory, we see him sitting on a throne with the angels around him. We've peeled back the curtain. The servant on the donkey actually is a king with this army around him. That's what the heavenly host is. It's an army. We see now the king they wished had come into Jerusalem instead of that servant on the donkey. And it says that all the nations are before him and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, Jesus was amazing at using all the stuff around him to be able to explain to people what he was talking about. But even to us, this is kind of an odd example. And it's because we are not shepherds or farmers in ancient Israel. See, sheep and goats in Israel basically look the same. They aren't very different from one another on the surface. Their wool looks about the same. They're all roughly the same size. And apparently they're actually herded together during the day. But there is one key difference. Goats can't handle the cold at night. They're not as hardy as the sheep are. And so what has to be done is the sheep have to be separated from the goats. And the sheep stay outside and the goats go inside. At night, as it's getting dark. With a bunch of animals that basically look the same. Well, almost the same. The sheep's tails point down and the goat's tails point up. That's the only criteria they have in the dark to be able to figure this out. And this is the example that Jesus uses to talk about how the nations will be judged. See, judgment simply means revealing that which is under the surface. It takes a skilled shepherd to separate sheep and goat from one another quickly and efficiently. So what's the criteria? What separates sheep from goat? Who gets to go to the good place and who gets to go to the bad place? Well, it's based on one thing, how Jesus says they treated the least of these. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you like that? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. See, Jesus makes it super personal. Whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you actually did for me, he says. Serve the least, and you serve Jesus. In other words, Jesus' heart is for justice. Now, justice means to put all things right, the things that were before wrong. And this is a theme for the book of Matthew. Producing good fruit is very often tied to the idea of justice, and he talks about good fruit a lot. In chapter 3, it says that you ought to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Translation, you are to treat others, all others, differently now that you have repented of your sins. 
The whole Sermon on the Mount, which is three chapters of the book of Matthew, Jesus goes into great detail all the ways that the poor, the peacemaker, the broken, the meek, the merciful, even our enemies, serve them and you serve Jesus. At the end of that, in chapter 7, Jesus says, Every good fruit tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by your fruit, you will recognize them. Sound familiar? In chapter 9, in chapter 11, in chapter 13, that's an interesting one. The parable of the weeds is a direct parallel to this passage on the sheep and the goats. But then again in chapter 16, chapter 18, it just keeps going. It is unavoidable in the book of Matthew. Actually, come to think of it, this isn't a new thing in the entirety of the Bible. Of all of the Gospels, Matthew's is the most Jewish, and it reflects quite a bit back on the Old Testament. Jesus quotes directly from the book of Hosea several times. It's a theme of the entirety of the books of Isaiah, Micah, Hosea, Amos, Zechariah, large chunks of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Proverbs, Psalm, well, basically all of the rest of them. The very purpose of the nation of Israel was to be a light to the nations. It's a shining city on a hill that people would know who God is by their mercy and justice. And every single prophet had to then confront Israel for failing to live up to that standard. They would challenge them to repent, which means to turn and live a different way, saying things like, God hates your worship because you are an unjust people. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. From Psalm 33, the Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. It is utterly impossible to read the Bible without seeing God is passionate for things to be made right between people and between people and God. So, if we've somehow gotten this far and not seen that the way we treat the poor... The immigrant, and that means every immigrant, the orphan, the widow or widower, the hungry, the thirsty, those in prison, if we've gotten this far and think that salvation is somehow only about a simple prayer, that we pray for ourselves to get into heaven, then we are severely, severely missing the point. See, God's judgment is not about whether you get yourself measured up. It may include some of that. But God's judgment is about putting the world right. And salvation is an invitation to be freed from those trappings and burdens of a world that treats people like objects to be used and abused and freed into a kingdom that establishes as its basic standard the life of servants to one another for every person because that is who God is. So Jesus is saying here, if you don't live like this, you're not like me. Do you know how many times Jesus does stuff like this, the entirety of all four Gospels? Feeds the poor, welcomes the foreigners and the immigrants, eats with the sinners, heals the sick, comforts the broken. 
shows mercy to the afflicted. This is his life story. And Jesus says, if you've dedicated your life to becoming like me, this kingdom is for you. But if you've chosen not to live like this kingdom, you clearly don't want to be in a place like this. So the only other place I can, save, I can send you is a place that wasn't even meant for you. Did you catch that earlier? Hell wasn't actually intended for people. It was intended for the angels who rebelled against God. See, God doesn't have it in for us. Judgment is not about punishment. It is about redemption. And I know that's not how we're often perceived. This whole, uh, this judgment thing is really what we Christians seem to be known for these days. There's numerous studies, including studies from the Barna Group and others, that back this up. Anybody who doesn't call themselves a Christian, especially here in the United States, ask them, and one of the very first adjectives you'll get is some variation on the word judgmental. That's horrible. Christian is a word that actually means little Christ. We're supposed to look so much like Jesus that we get mistaken for him. And the only people who didn't like Jesus were the people who were threatened by him, who felt like they had something to lose, mostly the religious establishment of his own people. Which actually leads me to the big debate in this passage among theologians. Who are the nations? Because again, all of the disciples spend all this time getting to know Jesus, who he is, what he's like. And yet there's this group called the nations who Jesus now has to divide into sheep and goat. Because they're all kind of surprised at what he looks like. So who are they? Well, the big debate is that some theologians think that this passage, Jesus is judging everyone. That at the end, Jesus separates all of humanity into sheep and goat. One goes one way, the other goes the other way. But there actually are a number of problems with this. I actually went back this week and read the entirety of the book of Matthew leading up to this passage, which is no small feat, but it is worth the time. I, I implore you to give it a go sometime. What surprised me the most is that none of this passage actually feels different than the rest of the book of Matthew. Everything he says here in this passage, he says throughout the rest of the book. So why does everybody seem so surprised? Now, I know that the disciples aren't the brightest bunch, okay? In one passage, Jesus, or Peter calls Jesus the Messiah, and then Jesus says, you are the rock upon which I will build my church. But then immediately in the next passage, Peter says something else, and then Jesus calls him Satan. All of that be said, though, the disciples are the ones who saw him resurrected. And if history is any indication, they became the apostles who followed Jesus' teachings in light of the expectation that he would return. So if all of these people are surprised, the sheep and the goats are all surprised. When did we see you like this? Maybe this passage isn't talking about Jesus' followers at all. In fact, if you look through the rest of the book of Matthew, the, word, the, the phrase the nations is used 
a number of other times to refer to those who don't yet know Jesus. Which means that it is assumed that Jesus' followers, the apostles all the way down to us, are people of justice and mercy because that is the God that we follow. That is the God that is transforming us from the inside out. It's just like we saw with that fig tree and through the whole rest of the book of Matthew. Jesus is constantly telling his disciples to be people who bear good fruit because good fruit comes from who we are. Judgment will expose that. And if somehow we've missed that theme, even after all of that, this is the passage that underlines the point. Jesus finds justice so important that the nations, all of those who are not yet followers of Christ, even at the end, Jesus says, now, I know that there's a bunch of you here that didn't really know me. But you kind of did because of the way that you behaved because of the way that you treated the prisoner with dignity. Not like a prisoner that was unjustly imprisoned. A prisoner that like legit hurt people and did horrible things is now in prison. You went and visited him. When you fed people who were hungry, even all of those people that get super hangry, you know who you are. Even them you fed. When you welcomed the immigrant fleeing persecution, when you welcomed them as one of your own, when you gave them a home to the orphan, when you did that, you acted like me. So come with me into this kingdom that I have prepared, because that's clearly where you want to spend the rest of your time, and you can get to know me, because that's who I am already. If we can't even see it then, can we really call ourselves followers of Jesus? For God so loved the world that Jesus came to show us this. This is our hope, church. Which means it is also the hope of the world. Jesus begins to make things right first inside of us and then through us. When Jesus says, behold, I am making all things new, this is what he's talking about. A world without the brokenness, without the consequences of sin and separation. Because that world has been redeemed to one another and to God. Are you surprised? I know that for me it's been a a tough few weeks as I've been studying this passage. um, Realizing how far I still have. To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God and with humanity, that is a tall order. And it's not like our culture makes it any easier. But judgment and justice take seriously what is wrong in our world. It takes seriously Holocaust and murder and consumerism and rape and isolation and violence and discrimination, greed and hunger and bullying and poverty All the things that we see that make this world a broken place. And those who work to cause it that way. Those who benefit from it. It means that suffering still means something in the end because in the end it will be vindicated. Because even death has been put to death with Jesus' death and resurrection. 
See, justice is good news. There's this church in Melbourne, Australia, and they started out kind of like any other church. There's many of them in the city. But one day, somebody discovered that the laneway behind their church, uh, is their word for an alley, had the highest rate of heroin use in the entirety of Melbourne. Now, I didn't know much about heroin at all before I volunteered there for a little while. Um, But apparently what you do is you mix a powder with water and then you inject that mixture. Well, who knows, but the addicts were actually using an outdoor spigot connected to the church. And the church responded as you might expect any church to respond. Uh, They turned off the water. But instead of leaving to find water elsewhere, instead of what they really hoped for, for them to stop this horrible addiction, the heroin addicts started using puddles from rainwater and sewage on the ground to fuel their habit. They started getting sick, as you might expect. So if you're them, what do you do with that? What do you do if you have these great intentions of helping to stop someone's horrible habit, this addiction that is consuming their lives, but instead you find out that what you did actually makes them sick? They're not learning a better way that way. Well, instead of giving up on this, they tried something unorthodox. The first thing they did was they made this very controversial decision and they turned the water back on. And then they installed a a safe needle depository there so that no one would get sick on their watch. Then they started a program called Urban Seed. They actually bought the building connected to their church. It was a nine-story high-rise and started this program called Urban Seed. They provided a place to live for a whole bunch of interns whose only job was to clean up the laneway. You know, put the garbage in the bins and that kind of thing. But... They were to do that when the addicts were down there shooting up. Their real job, see, was to actually get to know the addicts, to build relationships with them. As they learned, they started these other programs. They started this free cafe for people of all walks of life to eat together, family style. And I really mean everybody. They were soccer moms and lawyers and the heroin addicts and anybody else who had a minute during the day. They would come to this free lunch. There was an art program where they did murals and mosaics. There was a Bible study or two. They had this little worship thing that happened just before lunch once a week. And what do you know, but the heroin use in that laneway started dropping. In fact, at this point, it's actually basically gone. This laneway that used to be a place of suffering and sickness is now a place of hope. All because this church believed that Jesus is who he said he is. They believe that God's mission is so important that God can resurrect the world around him through them. A friend of mine posted on Facebook this week that a student of hers, is a six-year-old actually, described sacrificial love that means you do something that is better for someone else even if it's not the best for you. Even if it costs you something. So here's the thing. True justice will always cost us something, almost every time. Especially from those of us who indirectly benefit from injustice. 
And if you don't think that's you, I suggest strongly that you spend some time digging through our denomination's resources on racism or criminal justice or even creation care. And then, honestly, I think that's why posting about justice on social media is so popular. But actually doing things that enable justice is far less so. By way of example, I see a lot on Facebook and Instagram about racial reconciliation and poverty. But then when our youth pastor, Allie, brings people up to uh, Hartford Project or Edelbrook or the Middletown Food Pantry, I've seen two people go. Now, I know that some of you do things on your own. But that tells me that as a church, we need to step up. I mean, that story about Urban Seed, for me, that was 13 years ago. It was a very uncomfortable realization this week. I think it's about time for us to start telling some new stories together. To be people of justice usually means sacrifice. And here on the East Coast, time is probably our most valuable commodity. That means that we tend to idolize our talent. We fill it to the brim and sometimes even further. But being people of justice means a long-term investment of time in the hard work of relationship with people who aren't like us. And that means our time. There are so many opportunities that we miss simply because we have no margin in our schedules or because we have forced ourselves to focus on stuff that we do too much of. But as Pastor Craig said a few weeks ago, don't panic. As someone who actually does struggle with anxiety, um, that I found very uh, helpful as I'm thinking about not measuring up. I went to, I'd really love to get a Bible that actually has the words don't panic in large friendly letters on the cover. We don't need to worry that we're not measuring up. Jesus did not say we are to become the salt of the earth. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. We don't need to become the light of the world. He said, God already is the light of the world. See, God is not against us. Paul wrote that God is for us. Now, this isn't a sermon that's intended to make you feel guilty. But, if you have a moment of guilt, that can be a sign that there maybe is something in your life that needs to change. Maybe God is gently whispering to you, there's more. So if it seems daunting... Remember first that God is our refuge and our strength, and we are to fail forward. Growth happens in small steps. Maybe for you it means keeping an extra $20 in your wallet for that moment when you pass somebody in need. Maybe that's a starting place. Maybe that means clearing out your schedule on Wednesdays to go with Pastor Alley to the Hartford Project. It's a once a month thing. Maybe it's finding a book on justice to learn more. I got a list. Maybe that means looking up from your phone to see the people around you in the lunchroom or in the hallways that nobody else has noticed. Maybe it means stopping to notice them, asking them their names and see what happens from there. Maybe it just means some time set aside for silence and prayer 
to ask God who he wants you to see and care for. We need to lean into this. We need to lean into who Jesus is and who we are called to become. In Christ, Paul wrote, we are new creations. The old ways of selfishness are finished and gone. They've passed away and a new ransomed creation is here. Jesus will do that work in us if we are willing. And then he will do it through us. One moment at a time, one person at a time, until our world is different, until we are brand new, until we are like Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, you told us not to worry. And, uh, are you sure? God, help us to see where you are at work in our lives. Give us encouragement to know how to know you better. Help us to know how to begin acting on this call to justice and reconciliation with our world. Help us to see your image in the people on the street and in our workplaces and in our schools, especially the people who we just get really uncomfortable with. Help us to see your call, to hear your call on our time. Lord, transform us today. It is in your name we pray together. And everyone said, Amen and Amen.